Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel. And tonight we come to 1 Samuel chapters 27 through 29, three chapters. A lot of material to cover, I know. I'm sure you're thinking, how in the world is he going to do this? And we'll get out of here by 9 o'clock. I won't be able to read it all. I will read some sections and summarize other sections, but I encourage you to go back and reread the stories for yourself. Um, But uh, we're putting these together... Um, because as one story, as we compare David's desperation and Saul's desperation, it's in that comparison that some things pop out to us. And in 1 Samuel chapter 27 and 29, we see David's desperation and how the Lord delivers him. And we're going to contrast that with chapter 28, which shows Saul's desperation and his disintegration. Um, Now, in in chapter 28, the story is sort of interrupted. It's it's like a flashback in a movie. By interrupting, uh, the writer's not just keeping us on the edge of our seat, but he's forcing us to compare these two stories so that we understand more of his sovereignty and his grace and his goodness over desperate situations and how his justice and mercy just shines through Uh, desperate situations. So we're going to take a look at David's uh, desperation first and his deliverance in chapter 27 uh, through the the very first two chapters of chapter 28, uh, two verses of chapter 28. Uh, We're going to see that David's desperation, it's understandable but but unacceptable. It's cunning but dangerous. And it's not fully faithful but redeemable. Let's look at David's desperation, chapter 27, verses 1 through 4. David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of Saul's hand. So David arose And went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Ashish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Ashish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And and when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, Saul no longer sought him. So if you've been following the story, uh, David's been on the run for nine chapters. And Saul's jealousy has been burning for quite some time, and it's become murderous. At first, Saul's jealousy was murderous in these episodic uh, sort of just blow up of rage where he'd throw spears at, uh, at David. But it's progressed beyond that. And, you know, he would pursue David all around Israel 
and uh, gather up the army to chase down David and his men, seeking to murder David, and David would escape. But then it went even beyond that, and, and Saul would begin killing people, priests. He, he would sack these, anyone who gave refuge to David. And so there's really no safe place in Israel. And David is desperate in his heart, and so he flees to the Philistines. Now, his desperation is, is understandable, but not acceptable. How so? At this point in his life, we must recognize that David's misery is mostly forced upon him. And uh, if you've ever been chased, or, you know, you know it can be fun for a while. If you've ever watched, you know, an action-adventure movie and you see someone being hunted down like prey, it might be fun to watch, but it's an entirely different experience if you're the prey. (laughs) You get exhausted and exasperated. And like I said, at each turn, David has found trouble. Though he saved the city of Kila from the Philistines, he cannot rest there. God warns David that when push comes to shove, the city will not return the favor and protect David, Uh, from Saul, but the city will surrender David to Saul. And even the Ziphites from David's family tribe of Judah betrayed uh, David's whereabouts to Saul. And so where is David to flee for safety and rest? Like I already mentioned, spies and those who are afraid of being on the wrong side of history were siding with Saul at this point and reporting on David's movements. And uh, David, you have to remember, he's not only responsible for his own safety and that of his family, but in verse 2 and 3, what we read, there's 600 men who are with him, and he's responsible for their safety and their household safety. So, you know, it's completely understandable why after nine chapters of living on the run in exhaustion, David said in verse 1, he said in his heart, now I shall perish by the hand of Saul. And there's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Being on the run takes its toll. And David is convinced he's out of options and his only security lies in living with the enemy. And notice it's a despair of heart. David said, in his heart, now I shall perish. David's utterly convinced he's going to be swept away. Despite the Lord's record of protection to deliver David at every turn thus far, to deliver David through the hand of Abigail, to deliver David through the hand of Jonathan, to deliver David through the hand of Michael, to deliver um, him through Ahimelech, or when the Philistines attacked and caused Saul to return back from chasing after David. I mean, God has protected David over and over again and given him His promise is that David shall be installed as king, and yet David said in his heart, now I shall perish by the hand of Saul. And so he looks to Philistia rather than to God. The pressures have worn David out, and like I said, I'm not here to criticize David. This is completely understandable, but it's not acceptable. Can we still say that? Can we say something's understandable and we can sympathize with it, but it's not acceptable? I hope we can still say that. I hope that's what you're thinking. Because it's easy for us to criticize as arrogant spectators to criticize David because we're living safe and charmed lives. But I'm not here to criticize. I am here to sympathize. But as we sympathize, we want to sympathize that David had gotten to the point where he began to believe the propaganda. (laughs) 
and internalized it, that his self-talk had turned toxic. And I want to sympathize with that. And part of that sympathy is to say that when that happens, that type of despair, that type of hopelessness and helplessness, we cannot accept it. David is leaning on his own understanding and he has lost sight of the Lord's promises. So how does this apply? We need to be careful what we tell our heart. This is what David's telling his heart. I will perish. I will be swept away. But we need to remember Psalm 3, verses 5 and 6, where we're encouraged, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God, and he will make your path straight. So David's self-talk had taken a deadening turn. The tape in his mind was playing on a loop. He was not calling to mind God's ways and how he had faithfully protected him. He had lost sight of God's promise and anointing. And if David did it, we certainly can. Be careful of what you tell your heart. Our situation will only become more desperate when we allow our souls to be propagandized by fear rather than by the character and promises of God. And if we are sympathetic people, and many of us are, It may be tempting to excuse David's choice of finding refuge with the Philistines by seeking ways to justify it, saying, well, we'll notice that David's goal of getting Saul off his back was realized, so that must have justified it. While that may be true, David's decision was brutally dangerous and unacceptable, for it would put his kingship even at greater risk than he already believed it to be. David was engaging in a very dangerous game. And that leads to our next point, that David's desperation turned cunning and it led to some brutally dangerous behaviors. This is captured in chapter, uh, in verse 12 of this chapter, 27, where Ashish, the king of Gath, who has come to trust David, he, he, he thinks that David has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel And therefore, David will always be servant to the king of Gath. And now here we come to understand exactly why Ashish ever went along with receiving David and giving him a place to live in Philistia and giving him a city of Ziglag. Ashish's goal was to leverage the tension between Saul and David to divide and conquer Israel. But in order to maintain Ashish's trust... David had to prove his loyalty, and he did this by going on raids in verse 9 of chapter 27 and bringing back spoil from the raids to the king of the Philistines. Now, where did David go? Well, David told the king of Gath that he was raiding Israelite towns, but in reality, he was raiding, as we see in verse 8, the Geshurites, the, Gerz, <laughs> the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. So he's, he's actually raiding Israel's enemies, but telling the king of Gath that he's raiding Israel. But in order to maintain appearances, David could not merely be a raider stealing goods and laborers. He couldn't do that because why? Survivors talk. Raiders normally did just that, right? They just raided. They stole goods. Sometimes they took captives to serve as slaves. But David had become more than a raider. He'd become a butcher, killing every person from the towns he raided, women and children included. And even by the standards of David's day, David was practicing overkill. Not in obedience to God, 
but to maintain his cover and because he was desperate. Now, David's ploy worked well. He was so successful that the king, uh, King Ashish, believed David heart and soul. If you look at chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, when it came time for the Philistines to gather for war against Israel, Ashish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Ashish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Ashish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And then we have the story stopping abruptly. We're kind of left hanging there to ask a lot of questions before it switches over to to Saul's desperate situation. But some of the questions we're left with at this point is, is how is David going to get out of this pickle, this jam? Here David is heading into battle against Saul and Jonathan, whom he is in covenant with and against Israel, and he's surrounded by Philistines, and he can't simply change his mind. If he changed his mind, if he revealed his faithfulness to Israel, he and his men would have been slaughtered. If he simply tried to escape, many of the fighting men and the soldiers may have been able to make it out safely, but the women and the children would have been left behind and vulnerable to Philistine vengeance. And so David decides to go along with the charade, But consider this, David's deceitful ways could have been discovered at any time. Even as he responds to Ashish's, you know, commands, David's cunning ways are are almost transparent. In verse 8, when he says, very well, you shall see what your servant can do, a more discerning king might notice that the nearly transparent irony of that statement Philistine rumors of David's raiding were bound to find their way back to Israelite towns. And even if untrue, considering that David was living peacefully among the Philistines, it would at least appear to be true to other Israelites. And such appearance would severely undermine David's credibility among Israel. So he's really between the proverbial rock and the hard spot. There are no apparent solutions. But the question How is David going to get out of this pickle isn't the only question racing through our minds. Another question as I read this is, boy, David's really letting me down. How am I to make sense of this? I I view David as a hero. Why should I ever view David as a hero again? I mean, up to this point, if you've been very pro-David, you may now be feeling a little bit suspicious or maybe even betrayed and disappointed. David the raider is one thing, but David the butcher is quite another, and he's already slipped into other ways of disobedience. He's already entered into polygamous relationships, and maybe you're angry at the Bible for presenting this unvarnished truth without a clear condemnation of David, or maybe you're angry at the Lord for choosing David over Saul when both sinned in bigger ways than Jonathan did, for example. Jonathan doesn't get the throne. He doesn't get the glory, even though he remained faithful to to David, to his father, and to Israel, and even fighting to the bitter end for for righteousness and truth. But see, maybe it's, it's our predictable questions, our concerns, our doubts is the reason this story is written. As is, the text corrects our efforts to make David a model of virtue. The writer corrects the all too common temptation to make heroes out of our leaders. When David falls or a leader falls or someone like Ravi Zacharias falls and they're exposed as a terrible sinner, we're given an opportunity 
to repent, if need be, of our hero worship. And sure, it's appropriate to be sad. There's no need to repent of that, to be sad and disappointed for being betrayed and hurt and the dishonor it brings to God and his kingdom. That is certainly understandable and nothing to repent of. But if we are shocked, if we are undone, if we are living in denial saying, that person could have never done that, then there is room for repentance in hero worship. The best leaders of God's people are made of the same stuff as the rest of God's people, capable of terribly foolish and destructive sin. So that leads us to the last characteristic of David's desperation. It's understandable but unacceptable. It's cunningly wise but brutally dangerous and destructive. But last, it's, it's not faithful, but it is redeemable. In desperation, David had fainting fits of faith, even as God proved faithful. In other words, even when David's desperation turned faithless, God was faithful. To clarify, I'm going to approach the text, like I said, chronologically. To do this, we're going to skip over chapter 28. We're going to go to chapter 29. And in chapter 29, the Philistines are gathering for war against Israel. And when we left off in verse 1 of chapter 28, the king of Gath wanted David to fight alongside the Philistine army against Israel. So in chapter 29, that's what's happening. The Philistines are gathering their forces at Aphek. Now, if you look at a map, if you are going from Gath and trying to get to Shunem, where the battle is in chapter 28 that's going to be foretold, uh, it's a place near Gilboa, Aphek is on the way, and that's where they are in chapter 29. That's how we know chronologically, chapter 29 comes before chapter 28. Because in chapter 29, we see God's invisible hand at work here. (laughs) How is his invisible hand at work? God works to deliver David from the Philistines through other Philistines. And what is amazing to note is that God's presence is quiet. How so? David does not mention the name of the Lord. The only reference to the Lord is made in verse 6 where the king of Gath says to David, as the Lord lives, David, you have been honest with me, which of course David has not been honest with him. He's been lying all along. He lied to Eshish when they first met in verse 21 and David pretended to be insane to prove that he wasn't actually David. He lied again in verse 27 when he told Ashish he was raiding Israelite towns to enrich the Philistines when in fact he was raiding and butchering Israel's enemies. But Ashish so desired to turn David, to turn him, that it blinded him. And later Ashish was so confident that he had turned the heart of David away from Israel that he declares that David, according to verse 12 of chapter 27, had made himself an utter stench to his fellow Israelites by living in the Philistine town of Ziklag and by routing Israelite towns. So in verse 9, Ashish says to David, I know you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. That's the only other time the name of God is mentioned. David doesn't mention it. Now, while none of these statements are true, God uses the folly of Ashish to deliver David from David's folly. 
That's just like God, to use the folly of his enemies to deliver his people from their own folly. And so when the Philistine army is gathered at Aphek, and as the Philistines are passing by, you know, column after column, they're marching in this parade to assemble their forces. The Israelites that David's with, these 600 Hebrews, are at the back of the parade. And the other Philistine commanders in verse 3 of chapter 29 take notice of this, and they ask the king of Gath, what in the world are these Hebrews doing here marching with us? And an argument breaks out between Ashish and the Philistine commanders. Ashish argues, yes, this is David, servant of Saul, but since he deserted to me over a year ago, I have found no fault in him. In other words, trust me, he's, he's one of us now. I've turned him. Well, the Philistine commanders get angry with the king of Gath, and they say, he cannot go with us into battle, lest in the middle of the battle he turns on us and becomes our adversary. In other words, they're saying, think of it, Ashish. If David ever wanted to get back into the good graces of Saul or of Israel, all he'd have to do is to turn on us in the battle and offer our heads on a platter, and he's back in their good graces. And besides, they said, isn't this the same David who they sing of? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So absolutely not, Ashish. We are not taking this man and his men into battle. Now, if you really believe David is loyal to you, we will spare him this day. But he must return to Ziklag. He cannot go with us into battle. And humorously, in in verse 6 of chapter 29, Ashish comes back to David and basically apologizes for not being able to take David with him into battle against Israel. I mean, it's, it's hysterical. And David falsely protests, what have I ever done? <laughs> what have I ever done to prove I'm false to you? But in verse 11, David walks off with a smirk in his face. He takes his men and they return from their march into battle with Israel. And David is saved from his desperate situation through a combination of the folly of Ashish that vouches for David <laughs> and the wisdom of the commanders who knew better than to trust the mighty Israelite warrior, that this warrior would remember which side he was on when he entered the battle. And so we see God's invisible hand quietly saving David in a very desperate situation from David's lack of trust in the Lord, from his folly, from his brutality, from his anger, from his exasperation. See, sometimes God's ways are very unexpected. Now, while we should never purposely put ourselves in foolish situations or dangerous situations, the truth is, if we find ourselves there, God's hand is never too short to save from impossible situations. So that's the lesson we hit upon as we look at the life of David, let's look at Saul's desperate situation and compare it to David's. So Saul's desperation is in chapter 28, and we're going to pick up at verse 3. The writer gives us some background information. Samuel had died. He was the prophet that had told Saul the will of the Lord. And so when Saul sees that the Philistine army is marching toward Gilboa in verse 4, he's afraid and trembles greatly in verse 5. And he inquires of the Lord in verse 
6, but the Lord does not answer him. Let's pause for a second. In his fear, Saul looked for direction from the Lord, but God had shut off all communication with Saul. Samuel was dead, so Saul could not ask him, and neither did God answer Saul by dreams or by the prescribed means of the Urim or any other prophet. And so in desperation, Saul violates his own orthodox law, and uh, his desperation turns so toxic that he disguises himself, he dangerously skirts close to the Philistine army to get around the army to the other side where Endor is. He does this in the middle of the night. He could have been sighted or caught. And he goes so he can ask a witch of Endor to take her life into her own hands by calling forth Samuel from the dead so that Samuel could give him the answers that he's looking for. Now when Samuel appears, see I always get the weird text to preach. This is a weird text. I just needed to stop and say this. I, I got this. I said, I get the weird text again. We're not going to be able to answer all the questions about witches, okay? <laughs> Believe me, I've been thinking about all the questions and answers, but if you have some, come up and we'll talk later. But, so here, here, here we have Saul going to the witch of Endor. And uh, she calls up Samuel, and when he appears, Saul is sorely disappointed Saul's desperate situation takes a turn for the worse. For not only is Saul exposed even before the witch of Endor as a complete hypocrite who will not abide by his own laws and his own standards, but Saul is then rebuked by Samuel who had prophesied years ago that the kingdom would be torn from him because he refused to obey the Lord about the Amalekites. And that it would be given to another. And here we learn who that other is. That it's going to be David. And worse, Samuel adds that Saul and his sons will die the next day in this great battle against the Philistines that David was just spared from fighting in. And so in verse 20, Saul, hearing this news, falls to the ground in utter fear. And strangely, it's the witch of Endor that offers Saul his last moments of comfort. And after he initially refuses the comfort, he allows her to kill the fattened calf in verse 24 and to make him a meal fit for a king. But it will be his last supper. And the chapter ends with the despairing words, Saul and his servants rose and went away at night. In other words, Saul was at the nadar, the utter depths, utter despair, and he goes out into utter darkness. Saul's desperation ends in death and disintegration the next day when he falls on his own sword because he had been pierced with an arrow from the Philistine army and he didn't want them to to grab him, so he turns and falls on his own sword and takes his own life. His desperation ends in death and disintegration, while David's desperation ends in deliverance. And so my question is, well, what, what lessons can, we be, can be gained from this? What lessons? How, how do we learn from these two different experiences of desperate situations? How do we learn to, to be desperate in a, in a right way, in a true way? 
I think we all know that if you've lived enough of life in this broken world, there will be times, seasons, days, maybe even years where you you just feel desperate. You're overwhelmed, discouraged, and exasperated. But not all desperation is the same. Some desperation leads to death and disintegration. Some desperation causes men to jump off of buildings. Other forms of desperation causes men to finally do what needs to be done, things that they've been ignoring for a very long time, to deal with the healing that they need in their life. Other desperation leads to deliverance. Not all desperation is created equal. And the distinction between the type of desperation that leads to death and the type of desperation that leads to life is not found in morality or character or personal strength. Both Saul and David, as we see here and as the writer was bending over backwards to show us, we cannot make heroes out of either of these men. They are both big sinners with significant character flaws. Both proved less than faithful. Both yielded under increasing pressure. Yes, Saul yielded earlier, we might justify, and David yielded later, but they both got themselves into a desperate pickle in part because of their own lack of faithfulness and sin. And so what is the difference between Saul and David? I think one difference is this. Saul turned to God as a means to another end. Saul turned to God as a means to another end, as a means of saving his kingdom. Even his repentance always seems linked to saving face, to being restored as king, to having an established security as king over his kingdom. It was not repentance for God's sake, it was repentance for Saul's sake. Had Saul truly repented, it would have looked far different. Saul would have recognized Hey, God is the kingmaker. I never deserved to be made king in the first place. If he's removing me from that position, I'm not going to fight him. I'm going to step aside. And think of how much grief that would have saved his family and the whole nation of Israel. It would have saved civil war. Had Saul recognized this he w- and truly repented, he would have saved himself. But Saul could have only had the courage, the freedom to step aside if God was his treasure rather than his kingdom being his treasure. But since the throne was his treasure, he could not step aside. And so when God did not give him the answers he wanted, he would turn to anything or anyone else to get the answers he wanted to find, even if it was a witch of Endor. Saul wanted the results of God's favor more than God's favor. Now David, like Saul, was a big sinner. But David wanted God's favor more than the results of God's favor. He wanted God himself, and this enabled him to repent and wait upon the Lord. Both men felt God-forsaken. But when David was in a desperate situation... When David, like God, I mean, like Saul, when David, like Saul, felt abandoned by God, this is how he responded. We read it in Psalm 13.1. How much longer, Lord? 
How much longer will you go on forgetting me forever? How much longer will you keep hiding your face from me? Compare that to what Saul did. We see it in Samuel's rebuke. After God allowed (laughs) this woman to recall Samuel from the dead in verse 16, Samuel says, why do you ask me, Saul? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. See, if Saul should have been doing anything, he should have been seeking the Lord, not Samuel. Yes, the Lord was silent, but it wasn't because the Lord wasn't listening or hadn't answered. It was because the Lord had already told Saul what was expected. And time and time again, Saul refused to hear, refused to listen. See, Saul, what he needed was communion with God, but what he wanted was information from God that he could use to get his way. Both Saul and David felt forsaken by God, but believers like David run to God. Saul ran every which way, even to a witch, because he cared more about what he could get from God than having God himself. So in closing, where is your desperation leading you? Is it leading you toward God? Or is it leading you toward other things where God is merely a means to those other things? Now I want to give more hope than that. Because while this is true that we need to be challenged in terms of how we may be using God for other things, our hearts are desperately wicked. And for those who are particularly of sensitive conscience, they they may be thinking, well, I I never pursue God. I'm always using God. And and that's true, right? Because of our sin, it's, it's always corruptible. And our hope is, is that though we are not faithful, like David wasn't faithful, we are still redeemable. Though we are faithless, God is faithful. Why can we have such confidence? Because God proved through the person of Jesus Christ that he would never forsake those who turn to him in repentance. No matter how much mess they had gotten themselves in, no matter how long that mess existed, no matter how complicated they had made things, no matter how hard their heart had been, Jesus Christ came And he became God forsaken on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became God forsaken so that you and I who feel God forsaken never need to fear that ultimately we will be. And he opened the door for for utter complete forgiveness, which is why right after he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does he say? He says, it is finished. The penalty for sin has been paid in full. So there's no sin, no hardness of heart, nothing you can do that can ever separate you from the love of God. Jesus' payment on the Christ was accepted in full and his resurrection three days later was vindication, was proof that God accepted it. This is good news. It means that even when we look at our hearts and we recognize, I think I'm still using God, we can be forgiven of that. If we humble ourselves and say, God, I think I'm using you, but help me to want you more than your stuff. Help me to to pray. I want union with you rather than just blessings in life. It's very similar to the prayer, I believe, help me with my unbelief. I want you, even though I also want other stuff and maybe I want other stuff more than you, to sometimes forgive me for that, Lord. And the Lord loves to answer those prayers and forgive us and free us 
And as we do, we'll see life and restoration and deliverance and the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience be born in our life. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word to desperate people who at times are overwhelmed by life. Sometimes we're desperate because we've gotten ourselves into these situations. Sometimes we're driven into the situations by others. And Lord, we thank you for the honesty in the scriptures which, which paints desperation so starkly and honestly. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't brush it over. It doesn't paint it in rose colors. It, it paints it for what it is. And that gives us hope because it, it reminds us that you are the God of the desperate. You are the God who saves people like David. That when they place themselves in impossible situations and they're about to ruin themselves, that you rescue. Father, I pray for anyone here tonight that needs this good news that hasn't yet trusted in it. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would so move to grant them repentance unto life that they might trust in this good news and be liberated from their desperation that they would be delivered. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.